appropriate song as we're leading into this series. We are speaking, uh, we're talking about the book of Acts, and we're doing a series called First Things, and it's really all about speaking the name of Jesus and how the name of Jesus went out and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're looking at stories from the book of Acts. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are really two volumes together, right? They're two volumes that are part of a bigger work. And uh, at the beginning of Acts, uh, here's what Luke writes. Dr. Luke writes, In my former book, Theophilus, Theophilus is the guy he's talking to, that he's writing to and writing all these things down for. In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, that former book, according to Luke, was about what Jesus began to do and teach, right? Well, it kind of implies that this new volume, this book that he's writing now, the book of Acts, well, it continues the story of what Jesus is doing and teaching. Except right off the bat, we've got a problem. Because right here in the first 11 verses of the book, Jesus leaves. He, he goes to heaven. He returns to heaven for an unknown period of time. We don't know when he's coming back. We do know that he is coming back. He promises to usher in the, the fulfilled kingdom of God, and, and we're waiting for the new heaven and the new earth. But Jesus has removed himself, stepped back from the scene. So if he's physically absent, how can he do or teach anything? And that's really the main story of the book of Acts. That's what it's all about. With the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, Jesus' work is continued, but how is it continued? It's continued through the apostles and the disciples, right? That's how Jesus' work continues. And they pick up the baton. They do what Jesus was doing. They teach what Jesus was teaching. And through continuing Jesus' work, the church is born, and the gospel is spread to the known world. And we see the development of what we now call the body of Christ. Today, we're going to be looking at what that looks like, you know, and I'd like you to pray with me as we get started. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are looking at your church today, and as it emerges in the book of Acts, as it develops, and as we realize the baton has been passed from Jesus to the disciples and the apostles, and then down to us. Help us to see our role in this and help us to apply it to our lives. We pray that you will reveal yourself in your word and in us today. We pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. So I've got a big question today, and it's really going to run through everything we're going to talk about. And the question is this, what does it mean to be bold? What does it mean to be bold? Well, I think with today's media culture and with the political climate that we live in, we might think that bold means something like brash or cheeky or arrogant. But boldness isn't about being in somebody's face. That's not what boldness is really about. Uh, being bold is being willing to take risks, to try something, to do something that's new, and to speak with confidence and courage. Being bold is kind of getting out of our comfort zones, isn't it? And, and speaking about what we believe in. That's how it applies to the gospel. 
Well, that's what happened to these apostles and all the disciples when they received the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, when they received the Holy Spirit and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were empowered to spread the good news about Jesus. Think about Peter in Acts chapter 1. Peter in Acts chapter 1 is a different guy than Peter in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 1, he's a common fisherman, uh, and, and he's following Jesus. And in Acts chapter 2, all of a sudden, he's this powerful evangelistic preacher. In Acts 2, he's transformed, and he gives this great sermon and... Thousands of people literally come to Jesus in response to what he has to say. Well, today we're looking in, at an incident in Acts chapter 3 and 4 after that. And, and that all begins, this incident begins with a miracle. All of it has to do with boldness. As we go along, I want to highlight three things this morning. I want to talk about the power of boldness. And I want to talk about the opposition to boldness. And I also want to talk about a prayer for boldness, power of boldness, opposition to boldness, and a prayer for boldness. You may want to turn in your Bible to follow along with this verse, the verses I'm going to be reading here, Acts 3, 1 through 10, the verses are listed here. And uh, it's a story of the healing of a lame beggar that starts at the beginning of Acts chapter 3. Let me read that. One day, Peter and John... They were going to the temple at the time of prayer, about three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. And so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And he jumped to his feet and began to walk. And he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Well, what happens here, this healing of the lame man, sets off a huge chain of events. Uh, the first thing that happened is people came to see what was going on. I mean, they, they heard about it, and it says they literally ran to see what happened here. Um, I, I would like you to imagine, if you would for a moment, think about that happening here in Waynesboro. Let's, uh, let's think about maybe a local man, a man who's unable to walk, and let's call him Old Jim. So Old Jim, here in Waynesboro, let's say he parked his wheelchair outside the arch down at Main Street Park downtown. Okay, can you picture that? There's a wheelchair parked right there, and he's, he's there every single day, and he's begging for money, and people are passing every day, and over the course of almost 40 years, it happens every single day. Now, can you imagine that most of us would know his name? 
and that most of us would maybe know him personally. We might have stopped to talk to him. We might have given him some money, maybe bought him a meal, been involved in some way. In some way, we would know this man. Now along come a couple of fishermen one day. I don't know where they're coming from, Red Run someplace. They're, they're coming back from fishing, and, or, or maybe they're not, because we're moved beyond that stage. But a couple of fishermen come along, and they start talking to old Jim, and the next thing you know, old Jim is not only up out of his wheelchair, he is literally jumping up and down and praising God. I mean, can you imagine and he's telling anybody who will listen, God healed me. God healed me. God healed me. God healed me. Would that cost a crown? First of all, you know, that little park down there that we have, that, that would probably fill up pretty fast with people who, wait a minute, what's going on here? God's done something here, maybe. You know, they, they, the park would be full of people who want to see what's happened for themselves and and maybe over some time, as the word begins to spread, maybe the downtown starts to get crowded with a whole bunch of looky-loos who came to see what's going on. And they're all asking the same question. Is it true that old Jim was healed? Is it true that God healed him? Is that true? And they came to see for themselves. See, what's going on here in this story is just something that, that happened in a real place, in a real time, with a real group of people. And I think it helps us to think about it in terms of our own place, where we are now. Here's this man outside the gate called Beautiful. Beautiful was the name of the gate leading into the temple courts. And, and he was a lame man. He couldn't walk. He hadn't walked in years. And he's begging to get by. And when he got healed and began to jump up and down and praise God and walk around, a crowd formed. And it says they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Now, you might remember last week we talked about how Peter was really good. He, he watched, he took advantage of the opportunities that God was placing in front of him. Sometimes people will ask spiritual questions, and I think that God intends for us to to be able to step in and at least give some form of an answer. It doesn't mean we have all the answers, but it does mean that we have to be willing to speak out for God. And, and Peter, on that second of chapter of Acts day, you know, the one that we, we sort of, you know, freeze in our historical minds, on that day, somebody asks a question and Peter gives a response and that's how his famous sermon starts. And then it's another question that allows Peter to answer, and that's how he gives this altar call where 3,000 people get saved. He answered people's spiritual questions. And of course, Jesus is the answer. And so here, Peter sees another opportunity with the crowd forming. He sees this crowd gathering because of this healing, and, and he can see that this crowd is curious. They want to know what's going on, what really happened. And so he begins to speak. And it says, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, what is, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if our, 
own power, by our own power and godliness, we made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, can we advance the slide? Is that possible? That'd be good to have that up there. Thanks. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Let me read that part again. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, in that speech of Peter's, in that address to the crowd, he didn't pull any punches. In fact, he's He says, you, four times, you did this, you did this, you did this, and you did this. You crucified him. You gave him over. You had a choice to choose that he would be set free, and you didn't do that. You insisted the other guy get set free. And and he's very bold, and he's telling it like it is, and he's not sparing their feelings. He's not trying to be mean, but he is truth-telling. He's essentially saying, hey, The Messiah came to you and you blew it. You handed him over to be crucified. You killed the author of life. There's a great theological, we could have a lot of conversation about that. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And he points to the healed man, essentially, and says, this proves what I'm saying is true. Here is the man Healed by faith in the very same Jesus. He said some hard things to start. But he points. Here's the proof of what I'm talking about. It's this healed man. Well, he doesn't leave them wallowing in their in their guilt, right? You know, we're really good at that, preachers. We're really good at guilt. We love to give people guilt because guilt is a great motivator to change, except I believe that it's not really a great motivator to change in the long run. I, I think that we need to listen to what God's saying to us and make our decisions accordingly. And he doesn't leave the people in their own guilt and their guilty feelings He tells them what they need to do in response to what he's just said and to what they're seeing with this man who is healed. And he says, repent then, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. I love that way that puts that, so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Think about who's saying this. Who's saying this? It's Peter, right? This is still the same Peter that was only a fisherman just a few days ago. 
only a guy following Jesus just a few days before, now he is a powerhouse for God. He is a bold witness. He's been transformed, just like the lame man was transformed. Peter is not afraid here to boldly declare what he believes about Jesus and what he believes the people need to do. Peter is a bold witness, and that's a problem for him anyway. You might say that what happens next is a little bit predictable. The religious people get riled. <laughs> that happens sometimes, right? By this time, this crowd that had been outside the gate, by this time, the crowd has moved into the temple courts. Now they're at Solomon's Colonnade. And they're addressing the crowd in that side. Well, they're inside the temple, and so they've actually changed jurisdiction. You see, outside the temple guard and the high priest, they had no authority. But as soon as they stepped through the beautiful gate, all of a sudden now they can do something about these people causing a ruckus. And, and, and so they move in, and they can arrest these guys. And you know, they're very upset because of the message that the, the men were sharing, that John and Peter were sharing. They were proclaiming that in Jesus, there is the resurrection of the dead. Well, the resurrection of the dead had been discussed for centuries before. But they're saying now in this man, in Jesus, there is the resurrection of the dead because he has been resurrected. Remember, it hadn't really been very long since Jesus was crucified. It hadn't been very long since Jesus was raised from the dead. It hadn't been very long since Acts 1.8 and through 11 where Jesus ascends to heaven. So there's a very dangerous subject they're preaching about here. There's, you know, this is the kind of same fomenting of unrest that was happening when Jesus was preaching in the same kind of a setting. And they would consider that dangerous. And so they arrested them. And they had them put in jail overnight. I don't think it had the desired result. It says here in Acts 4.4, but many who heard the message believed so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Think about that and think about how threatening that is for the religious leaders. A couple of days ago, they just had this big thing happen in the square, and 3,000 people came to believe. Now, a couple more thousand just a few days later have come to believe. We're at about 5,000 believers. This is growing at a rate that's just going to get out of control. I want to point out that this follows a pattern that we see even today. And we've seen it happen in places like China, or North Korea, and other places where there has been persecution. Every time you try to suppress the church of God, it grows. It grows. It has the opposite effect to what the suppressors or the persecutors would have it do. So what happens to Peter and John here? Okay, physically they got arrested. They spent the night in jail. So when they got up in the morning, did they give up and go home? 
Mm -mm. They got hauled in front of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council. But even more than that, all the bigwigs were there. All the, the high priest and his whole family were there. You know, the, the whole of the, the Hyrcanus family, all of the, the ruling family that was there, all the important people. And together, they essentially put Peter and John on trial. Now, here comes one of those questions that Peter won't leave unanswered, you know. There's another one. They ask, by what power or what name do you do this? <laughs> Peter doesn't need much of an opening to drive that truck through, does he? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Imagine if you were put on trial for your faith. How do you feel like, I've often thought about this, how would I fare in this? If I were put on trial for my faith, would I be bold like Peter is bold? Would I speak even though it might get me killed? But notice Peter, when he speaks, doesn't speak in his own strength or in his own power even. It says at the beginning of this passage, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke to them. Peter is still being bold, but he's not being bold in his own strength. Now, this is why I've stressed over the last couple of weeks, I've mentioned a couple of times that how important it is for us to ask God to fill us with his Holy Spirit, to be empowered to do those things that God has called us to do. Have you ever been in a situation where your words completely fail you? I mean, I've been in those kind of situations lots of times, and, you know, you think in the situation, I, I have no idea, I don't know what in the world to say to this person. I don't know how to answer these questions. I admit, I've been in, in that situation a lot of times. But I really feel that we can ask the Lord, please fill me with your spirit and lead this conversation and give me words to say and then step out in faith. And that's what Peter did. He spoke clearly and boldly to a group of people who had every reason to reject what he had to say. I mean, they have centuries millennia of religious tradition. And he's going to mess it up. They're going to interfere with the status quo. They have every reason to reject what he has to say. And he tells them in no uncertain terms, salvation is found in no one else, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's not what they believed. <laughs> That's not what they spent those centuries revving themselves up for. 
You think this might have challenged the members of the Jewish ruling council? Words like this got Jesus crucified just a short time before. The problem was they they just didn't know what to do with these guys. What do we do with these two men? How do we punish these men? We got this big crowd outside the gate. You know, we know there's at least a couple of thousand people there, maybe even in the temple courts. How do you punish these guys? The man who'd been healed in Jesus' name was standing right there. It's not as if they could say, oh, these guys are just making it up. Because the evidence was right in front of them. They knew this man. It, said, it says that it makes, makes a point of noting that this man had been like this for 40 years. Why does it say that? It's saying it because, you know, if, if it was a child we were talking about, maybe that child might grow out of it. Maybe that child might get healed as they get older. But this fellow has been in the same condition without any change for 40 years. And so something radical happened here. Something crazy. Something without an explanation except the explanation that Peter gives. And the explanation is Jesus. Jesus did this. He's standing right there. Says, what are we going to do with these men? They ask. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign Notable sign, I like the way they put it. And we cannot deny it. And so, what do they do? They warn them, stop speaking. Don't speak about Jesus anymore. Don't speak in Jesus' name anymore. Don't talk about this incident that just happened. Don't teach in his name. It says, but Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you? Or listen to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. It's their testimony. This is, you know, we talked this morning in our Bible for Life Hour about how, you know, your testimony is the most powerful thing you have. It is evidence of a change in your life, and it's not something that can be denied. Here's a change. They can't be denied. And the Sanhedrin didn't know what else to do or say. And they threatened these guys some more, and then they let them go. What else could they do? Maybe the crowd would riot. They didn't know. Peter spoke in power and in boldness, proclaiming Jesus. And that brought opposition to that bold testimony that he brought. But in the end, God prevailed, and they were set free. We said before that the more pressure that's put on the church, the more the church grows. But it's also true that the more the church grows in the book of Acts, the more persecution there was. It got hotter. So what did the believers do about that? And that's our next point. On their release, it says, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. That's what the believers did. How do we react when we have an extreme challenge? How about when we're threatened? 
See, I, I think our first response is not always the disciples' response, is it? At least it's not always mine. I think there are a number of ways we might react. Worry, there's one of them. No? We might worry, really fret. What about fear? We react with fear for sure. Given the same circumstances, maybe we'd run and hide. Or maybe we might start loading up on ammunition. Get ready for the big battle. Or we might do the unthinkable for any of those reasons. We might give up the message and stop speaking about Jesus or in Jesus' name. That would be a possible response. And the disciples had all those choices, the same choices that we do. But how did they respond? It says they prayed. And what did they pray? Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of our holy servant, your holy servant, Jesus. There's something missing from this prayer. Did you notice? They don't pray for protection. <laughs> they don't ask God to protect them, to keep them safe. That might be the first thing I would do. I don't know about you, but they didn't do that. They prayed for God's power for more boldness. And that God would do even more signs and wonders, the very thing that got Peter and John into trouble in the first place. They, more, God, more, let's get into more trouble. And they did that so that the name of Jesus would go out and so that the gospel of Jesus would be spread. And I love the final word on prayer here. It says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Boldly. It's an awesome story. I love this story. It reminds us of how God's power works in so many different ways. I want to share with you as we finish up this morning some quick takeaways that I think we can really apply to our lives. The first thing is that boldness comes from deep, deep conviction of the truth of the gospel, okay? So we want boldness in the gospel. It has to come from that place of deep conviction. Um, if you don't really believe something, you can't be bold about it. Isn't that true? It's an obvious thing. On the other hand, if you believe in something deeply, you are much more likely to be bold about it. So here's a hard question you need to ask yourself. Do I really believe in the truth of the gospel? Do I really believe it? Do I have a deep conviction about it? If so, what's the logical conclusion? The second thing is boldness is demonstrated through words and actions. Well, sometimes it's easy to say bold words, right? Especially if we're on the internet. We're on Facebook and we're behind a keyboard or we're behind a microphone, you know, on the internet doing a podcast or something. It's easy to say bold words from a distance. Nothing wrong with speaking about what you believe. Nothing at all, especially about Jesus. But do you live what you say you believe? 
That is the true test, isn't it? That's the undeniable test. It's the test of the healed man, right? And the third thing is boldness in witness often leads to opposition, but also to the manifestation of God's power. Now, there's one to think about. When opposition comes, often God's power is present. If we remain silent, what need do we have for God's power? None, right? If we're not saying anything, we don't need God to help us with it. Is it too much to say most of us might not need to be filled with God's Holy Spirit because we're not doing anything that requires God's help? Is that too bold to say? But if we speak out for God and we step out for God, we have to have his empowerment or we will fail miserably. We might even end up persecuted. And if we're going to do God's will, we're going to have to step out, aren't we? There's no other way to do it. So I'm going to finish with two words. You ready for this? Be bold. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times when we are too timid to share when we have the opportunity. Fill us with your spirit. Give us boldness to speak the gospel. Lord, we seek and we expect the manifestation of your power in our lives and in our witness to others. We boldly say, like the apostles Peter and John, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must save. Only the name of Jesus in whose name we pray now. Amen.